Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the uh, video teaching series, Our Motives from God's Perspective, Part 2. This is lesson number seven, and uh, we're dealing with the effects of shame and a lifestyle of shame on our ability to have pure motives that please God. And uh, we talked about the subject of this lesson uh, quite a bit in the last lesson, but this it, this subject is so critical that uh, we're going to take another whole lesson on it. Uh, and that is seeing ourselves from God's perspective. I remember... Uh, uh, my wife and I had been married 10 years. Uh, there was a five and a half year age gap between us. Uh, I loved her, but I married her first and foremost because it was the will of God. I'd been seeking since I was 12 years old to, uh, for God to give me the wife he wanted me to have. I don't. I got the Holy Ghost Sunday after my 12th birthday, and nobody ever told me this. I, it just, the Lord put it in my heart to pray that he would give me the wife he had for me to have. But I didn't fully understand what I knew, but I knew in my heart that my choice of a wife wasn't just about having someone to share life with, not just to have a best friend, uh, but that everything I was and would be in life would be dramatically affected by who I married. And so uh, being lonely and wanting to have companionship, even as a teenager, uh, I knew my propensity to uh, like somebody and assume that was this was it, and I'd have to pray and give it to God. And there were numerous times he shut down relationships because it wasn't his will. But uh, when he revealed his will to me, I knew why he had waited so long because when I met her, she was still 16. I was 22. I just graduated from the Naval Academy two days before when I met her. And she was still two months shy of 17. I just finished college. She was about to start her senior high school. And there was nothing about her as a person that was a problem. She was beautiful. She was spiritual. Uh, she carried herself with class. She was intelligent but she was 17 and it was difficult for my pride to believe God was giving me a 17 year old girl when I'm a college graduate. And uh, that was nothing but pride, my own arrogancy, but I wanted to do the will of God. And so he continued to talk with me and made it clear to me that she was his will. And it was no hardship to marry her. The hardship was her having to put up with me. Because with her being 17, somewhere in the back of my brain, I got the idea that it was my responsibility to continue to complete raising her. Uh, I was her husband. I was not her father. Boy, did I make a mess of all that. And so she was different from me, very different from me. And it, her perspective on things, the way she felt about things was very much the opposite of mine. Well, if all her perspective on things was opposite of mine, then she had to be wrong, right? I mean, I'm the old man. She's a kid, uh, which is, was all ludicrous because none of that was true. 
But that's the way my pride saw it, especially when I was trying to justify the fact I'm trying to correct her and fix her in things that I don't agree with. Uh, I totally did not understand that God put opposites together, etc. And, uh, and I was letting our uh, points of difference be points of conflict. And he showed me one day, I actually saw a pair of hands do like this. He said, I made her different than you, but you're letting those differences be points of conflict. With just a small adjustment of your attitude, you'll find that they are not conflicts, but they are compliments. That her differences and your differences complement each other, so the two of you are far greater together than you would be individually. Well, it took me years to learn that, and uh, I was trying to get her to do this and be this and do like that and whatever. And uh, if you would ask me, do you love her? I, yeah, I love her, and she's the will of God for me. That makes me the will of God for her. So this is my job as a husband to. To fix this, that's wrong. I learned that you correct children, but you lead a wife. I wasn't leading her. I had hoops for her to jump through. Not naturally, but spiritually especially. Okay, we're going to do this, whatever, whatever. And uh, I don't know how she survived those first 10 years with me, but it was right around the, our 10th anniversary. My Lord, The Lord said to me one day, he said, are there things about yourself you don't like? I laughed. I said, you know there are. There are more things about me. I was still, that was when I had shame and I hadn't been healed yet. Uh, look, there's far more things about me I don't like than, there, than there's anything I could accept. He said, are you trying to change those things? Boy, he was setting me up. I didn't know. I didn't realize how much he was setting me up. I said, yeah, you, you know I am. He said, have you been able to change them? I said, Lord, I don't know. What this is about, you know, I haven't been able to change them. I'm better with some, but I haven't been able to change those things. He said, then why do you think your wife should be able to change just because you tell her to? Bam! <laughs> Did he ever more get my attention? It's like the city guy was driving down the country road and the farmer was trying to get his mule out of the ditch. And he was pulling on that the bridle of that mule and doing pleading and begging and screaming and cussing, trying to get that mule out of the ditch, and that mule wasn't moving. And the city guy stopped and said, What's going on? He said, What's it look like? That mule's in the ditch. I'm trying to get him out of the ditch. He said, Why don't you just tell him to get out of the ditch? He said, What do you mean tell him? I've been yelling, screaming, we get out. He said, no, you just have to tell him to get out. He said, well, if you're so smart about this, why don't you get my mule out of the ditch? So the guy got out of his car. He looked around, found himself a, a limb, a limb, a heavy limb. He walked up and absolutely with all of his might hit that mule upside the head. And then he said to the mule, come out of the ditch. And the mule got out of the ditch. The farmer said, what do you do? What did you do? What do you, you you just hit my mule in the head with that log. I thought you said all you have to do is speak with him. He said, well, you had to get his attention first. Well, that's what the Lord did with me. Hit me with a log. I was a mule in a ditch. Hit me with a log in the head. You got all these things you want to change. You're trying to change, and you can't change them, but you expect her to change just because you tell her to. 
He said, he wasn't through with me. He said, do I love your wife? Yes. Do I love her just like she is? Yes. Then why don't you, why don't you pray and ask me to open your eyes so that you can see your wife like I see her? Then you can love her with my love because you'll see everything about her that I love and approve of rather than seeing all the things she needs to change. Well, I did. And it changed our whole, changed me and it changed our marriage because it took the stress and pressure out of the marriage of me trying to fix her. About six months later, I noticed that she was starting to do some things that I wanted had been wanting her to do a long time. And she wasn't. And now I made peace with her just like she is. And I'm loving her just like she is. And I, 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 in frustration, I said to her one day, Alice, all those years I tried to get you to do this and not do that. And you, you didn't do it. And now that I, it doesn't make any difference because I love you just like you are. Now you're changing. And she hit me with the, the log that time. She said, while you were telling me all the things I had to change, it felt like you were saying to me, if you don't change, I won't love you and I can't give you approval and acceptance. But when you started to love me just like I was, and I, and I knew you loved me just like I am, and I didn't have to do anything to earn that love anymore, I found I wanted to change, and then I found I was able to change. That's what I'm saying. You and I must see ourselves with God's eyes. We see all the stuff about ourselves we don't like, but we need to see two things about ourselves that God sees first. We need to see the things about us he approves of. And if we're his children and we have his name on us and we have his spirit abiding in us, there are things about us he approves of. of. And then we need to see those things that he doesn't approve of from the light of his ability to change them if we can just stop making our change a quest to earn his love. If we can accept his love unconditionally, he will change us. I've said this in recent lessons. I've been saying it for years, and it wasn't original with me. God loves us just like we are, but he loves us too much to leave us like we are. But he can't change us till we're first willing to let him love us like we are. So how do we How do we see ourselves from God's perspective? Because this is one important requirement for developing true humility. And that's being able to see ourselves from God's perspective. How do we do that? By seeing God first, by getting to know him, knowing him. While I'm trying to figure me out, I don't need to figure me out. I need to understand him. Then I can see me in the light of him. 
by investing time with him. You can't have five-minute conversations with God and get to know God. You can't read a chapter a day of the Bible and get to know God. Investing time with him in prayer and his word and having a God consciousness throughout the day is absolutely imperative if you really want to get to know God. And you've got to be able to hear the voice of God because you need to be able to have two-way communication. You need to know that he hears you, but more importantly, you need to know that you are hearing him so there can be two-way communication. By letting our relationship with him unfold, we will see both ourselves and him from his perspective. We, we have to grow. That's why the last words of the Apostle Peter that he wrote down, First Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That knowledge is not intellectual knowledge. It's not, it's not natural knowledge. It's spiritual knowledge. And it's experiential knowledge. Grow in grace and in our knowledge. That's, that's relationship. I cannot grow in experiential knowledge with, with God without growing in relationship with God. This all will produce poverty of spirit. In fact, poverty of spirit is a normal consequence of seeing God and beholding him in all of his glory and his awesome power. So true humility is the acknowledgement, the awareness of how great he is and how great I'm not, of how much power he has and how weak I am to do anything good, anything right, anything pure, anything holy, that I need him to do that through me. Our focus must not be on, must, our focus must be on God and not on us. If I focus on God, he will focus on me as he chooses to in his time. But if I'm trying to fix everything that's wrong with me so I can finally be at peace with myself, if I'm trying to get better so I can preach better sermons so people will be more impressed with me and they will feel better about me and I can feel better about myself because they're bragging on me because I'm a better preacher or a better singer or a better prayer, I've prayed with people that their number one goal was to pray in such a way that we would be impressed with their praying. They have their reward, Jesus said. That's their reward. They're not getting one from him. Whatever impact positively from their perspective that they're having on our opinion of them, that is their reward. That's it. When I sing a song or I play my trumpet and my motive is people say, boy, that was really a good song today or that you played really good on the trumpet today. If that's my motive, that's my reward. I don't get anything from God for that. That's my reward. If people bragging on me is my goal, that's my reward. If people are bragging on my preaching, my teaching, that's my reward. If that's what I'm after. In order to grow in him, in order to see ourselves from his perspective, in order to have poverty of spirit, in order to have true humility, in order to have right motives, our focus must be on God and not on us. In order to experience true humility, we must stop focusing on ourselves 
on either our achievements or our failures and focus on God instead. He said if we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to deal with our sins quickly. So that we can move on. It is not faith. It is not humility to wallow in the shame of my sin. It's not. And it does not honor the love of God that I wallow in my the shame of my sin or punish myself for my sins. That doesn't glorify God at all. That's all about me. That's all about, well, I can't ask God to forgive me because he will do it too easy. And I'm not worthy of being forgiven. So I'm going to punish myself for a while. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep this sin and, 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 and so that my prayers aren't answered and God doesn't hear me so that I can pay the price for what I've done. Let me tell you something. Do you have nail scars in your hands? Does your back like, look like a plowed field? then any effort you make to pay the price for your sins is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. There's so many people that have perverted the scripture that says that we will reap what we sow. So every time something bad happens to them, from their perspective, bad, I'm being punished for my sin. Let me tell you something. You know what punishment for sin is? It's hell forever in outer darkness Weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, burning in fire forever and ever and ever. That's God's perspective of what punishment for sin is. Your bad circumstances are not punishment for your sins. Because here's the problem. What happens when you ha- you're prayed up and repented and bad happens? Is, it, is that punishment for your sins? Bad meaning things that go against us, things that cause us pain or pressure or hardship or disappointment or sorrow or whatever. What happened to all things work together for good to them that love God and then were called according to his purpose? What happened to that? Because if I'm viewing everything good is because God's pleased with me, everything bad that happens to me is because God's unhappy with me. That's not the way God works. The rain falls on the just and unjust alike. So do the storms. Rain falling is usually a part of some kind of disturbance or system that came through our lives. And whether it's a gentle rain or a heavy downpour of rain, whether there's some wind or a lot of wind, it happens to everybody. Not about approval or disapproval, like or dislike. God loves, and him giving rain so that the ground will produce and we can eat is a sign of God's love. Now, God can use storms to get our attention, but he also can use storms to demonstrate his power and glory. We have to stop interpreting things that happen bad as meaning God is rejecting us. I've performed uh, funerals for babies that were full term but stillborn. Was he punishing those parents? Was he? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Now, 
He can withhold the rain to get our attention, but it's not punishment. He gives rain, but he withhold rain, he gives rain. I have to quit interpreting circumstances negatively always. But if if that's going to be my perspective, then when God gives me something that I didn't earn, does that now mean, well, I must be okay with God. He gives us, when we seek him and commit to him and give ourselves to him and want to be a part of his kingdom, through prayer and fasting, he will give us gifts. But once he gives that gift, he can't and won't take it back. He gives to call it God without repentance. It doesn't mean we can't repent. It means he can't change his mind. So those gifts that are for the benefit of his kingdom, that should be used for his glory, I can pervert them and use them for my own glory and my own credit. So that which could do great benefit for the kingdom of God can also do great harm for my life if I misinterpret him using me through that gift and I consider that the demonstration of God through that gift means I'm righteous because it's not the case as we find in Matthew 7 21 through 23 they didn't he didn't know them in an approved relationship yet they cast out devils they prophesied and they did miracles and he did not deny the validity of those things but he said you don't know me and I don't know you in fact you're a person that is given over to doing nothing but your own will depart from me I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. So I have to let God enable me to focus on him, his word, his spirit, fellowship, praying, et cetera, et cetera, and not on me. I can't wait till God fixes every one of my problems to let him use me. One more time, in order to experience true humility, we must stop focusing on ourselves, on either our achievements or our failures, and focus on God instead. The opposite of humility and humility's mortal enemy is self-will. Self-will. As I've taught previous lessons in this, in part two and in other other lessons I've taught when I'm praying for God to do what I want I am praying my self-will and the presumption that God is there just to give me all that I want Uh, if a man's ways please the Lord he will give him the desires of his heart make even his enemies to be at peace Yes, and who's, what man, what human is it whose ways please the Lord? Those whose ways are are completely surrendered to God and his will. The ways that please God are us doing the will of God by the grace of God. That pleases God. That pleases God. The byproduct of self-will is self-absorption. Self-absorption is devastating to our walk with God, regardless of whether it is expressed as self-love 
or self-hatred. Self-love, self-hatred are both self-absorption. Developing humility by the grace of God is a process of decentering from ourselves and recentering on God. One of the greatest revelations that you or I will ever get from God is, I'm not God. You're not God. And I'm not my own God. Only God is God, and only God is capable of being my God. Now, I can worship things that are not God in the place of God. That's called idolatry. And idolatry is as witchcraft because I am worshiping by another spirit when I'm involved in that. I'm not my own God. Only God is God. Clearly, in God's eyes, I am important. Clearly, in God's eyes, I am special. Clearly, in God's eyes, you are important. Clearly, in God's eyes, you are special. But I'm not more important to him than anybody else. He loves every one of us the same. Everybody's given different circumstances in life. Everybody has, every individual has different circumstances in life. No two people have ever been created in the exact same circumstances, with the exact same personality, exact exact same uh, features and abilities and gifts. Nobody has ever, there's no, there's never been a clone. God has never cloned anybody. So each one of us from that perspective is special. Everyone is special. Everyone is unique. But I am not superior or inferior to any other person. I am not measured by them. I'm not compared by them. The word sin, the word sin is a really important word because the Greek word that's normally translated sin literally means uh, to miss the mark. And the root word there is portion or share. So sin is not whether or not I do right things and don't do wrong things. So if I don't do the right things, I've sinned. And if I do the wrong wrong things, I've sinned. Well, that's sin. True, that's sin. But what is really sin? Doing, not doing the right things and doing the wrong things, there's only expressing an expression of my own self-will, which is keeping me from missing the mark because I can't possibly find a way to 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 receive my portion or share without surrendering myself self to God. I can't. You can't. We cannot surrender ourselves to God and find our place in him and fulfill our place in him without giving ourselves to him and not doing our own will. We can't do it. We can't do it. We have to have him working in our lives. We have to acknowledge who he is and who we're not. But he is no respecter of persons. Every single one of us is equally loved by him. Every one of us is put in a place where what's required of us is unique before God. Yes, the word is the word. But the will of God for me is different than the will of God for you. And I'm not accountable for you doing the will of God. I'm accountable for me doing the will of God. 
Jesus died for every soul the same. Every soul is going to heaven or hell. Every soul is going to heaven or hell. The world has a whole big time problem with that because they don't know God, they don't understand God, and they don't know what we're doing here. And so their whole purpose is to try to make this heaven on earth. It's not heaven on earth. And every man has his own definition of what it would take for this to be heaven. Every single one of us has our own definition of what it would take for this to be heaven to us. So this is not heaven. God's not going to make it heaven. This is a time of process where God is preparing us for our place in his eternal purpose. And that place in his eternal purpose is reflected in a very, very limited way by his purpose and plan for us here in this earth now. This is the testing ground. This is the growing place. This is the equipping time. We're all uniquely made in the image of God. But the question comes down to this. Am I going to let God love me and his love working through me by his spirit, which is called grace? His love at work in me through his spirit is called grace. Am I going to let his grace make me what I'm supposed to be in him? I'll say it again. I am neither you or I are neither superior nor inferior to any other person. Neither is anyone more or less important to God uh, nor more or less special to God than I am, than you are. Jesus died for every soul the same. Every soul is going to heaven or hell. While the Creator made each of us unique within ourselves, He did not make one of us to be more important than anyone else. Again, in God's eyes, I am not better or worse than others. He sees us all on an even playing field. The Lord made us different naturally to test us with how we treat one another. Uh, Rebecca had twins in her womb. The only children she would ever birth. Rebecca was Isaac's wife. Before they were born, the Lord said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Oh, that wasn't fair. They didn't have a chance. They didn't, God loved one of them and hated the other one before they could even be born. No, no, that just proves you don't understand God and you don't understand the word of God. That's not what the word says. That's not what God was saying. God in his foreknowledge knew that one of them was going to pursue him, wanted him, wanted blessings, the blessing of God, wanted a relationship with God, wanted the promises of God that God had given to Abraham, his grandfather, and to Isaac, his father. And the other one, none of that would matter to him. That would be his choice. That would be his will. And God, in foreknowledge of the choices these men were going to make, made the statement before they were born. I love Jacob because he loved me. I hate Esau because he hated me. They were, they were both born equally. One was going to be born first, and that one would get an inheritance. But how many second sons and younger sons has God used throughout the Bible? 
So just because I'm not the firstborn doesn't mean that God can't use me. And just because I am the firstborn doesn't mean I can lord it over everybody else. Because I am uniquely made, and each one of us has a unique set of responsibilities from God. And that un- unique set of responsibilities and expectations from God is called His will for me, His plan for me. And my motive for doing His will and my motive for doing His plan must be to fulfill God's plan, to please him, that he might be glorified. It cannot be what I'm going to get out of this. It can't be. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I loose the spirit of grace upon you and on myself, that the spirit of God, the grace of God, might work in us and open our eyes, our understanding, give us revelation, impartation of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, that we might walk in with God in a way that pleases God and fulfills his will and plan for our lives to his glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.